for leading us in those moments. Wow, really? Can you say thank you to Pastor Dan? That's better. Grief. Uh, as you can see, uh, Calvin and I are going to do this together today, which uh, is going to be really, really fun. And uh, I'm excited to uh, give a little talk with Calvin. Uh, I want to start, we're going we're gonna to see a bunch of scripture today, and we're probably going to move pretty fast. So uh, for, forgive us for that to the extent that that is difficult to chase, but it's a valuable topic and one that we want to Six, bringing this to my mind, and I just want to stop here briefly. It's not even in your program. Um, uh, but Micah is wrestling with what does God want The Niners are going to sacrifice the Rams tomorrow, I believe is how it's going to go. Different Rams. Let's go. But you know, your audience, right? Um, and, and it goes on, this big long list. God, what do you want from me? What do you want from me, God? And it says, verse 8, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Recently, Calvin and I sat down for a couple of hours over um, a pretty mediocre meal, uh, but it was a great conversation. Chilies. Uh, I wasn't going to throw them under the bus. There goes our endorsement. I, I um, was. Yeah, right. We, uh, we sat and got to talk about worship for quite some time, and in a few days later, we gathered with our Sacred Conversations community. Uh, for those who are unaware, Sacred Conversations is a monthly meetup of a group of Christians and agnostics and atheists. Um, so, you know, a Christian and agnostic and an atheist walked into a bar, right? Um, and it does meet at a bar, so um, that's kind of fun. And the topic in that gathering last month was around worship as well. And so these things had been bubbling in both Calvin and I for some time, and as we prepared to share some thoughts about our church's pursuit of worship and how we see the pursuit of worship as a people living together in community, those things have bubbled up. And God used that gathering of sacred conversations in some pretty powerful ways a couple of weeks ago. A few of those testimonies I'm, I'm holding and hoping to get permission uh, to interview those and, and share some of those on Anniversary Sunday. I don't yet have that permission, so I, I won't get, for those of you in the room going, if you tell my story right now, I'm going to kill you. I'm not going to tell your story. Don't worry. Uh, you're going to tell your story um, in just a few weeks, uh, if you want. Around that table uh, that night, God showed up in some pretty incredible ways. And, and one of the things that I heard bubbling up in that conversation, and it just continues to bounce around my head and heart, is this pretty fundamental to the discussion of theology and worship. The, these discussions we have are really really key. I want to hand this off to Calvin shortly to share some things God's been stirring in his heart as we uh, orient ourselves around worship. But let me set some foundational thoughts from the get-go. And, and the first is this idea that worship sits at the heart of the gospel. What, what do you mean by that, Stu? What, what I mean by that most simply is that our worship flows out of our ideas 
about God and his good news. This is an uncomfortable reality, but the reality is our experience leads what we think and believe about God. Now, a lot of us who've grown up in the church would like that to be reversed, and we were kind of taught it should be different, right? It should be the scriptures guide our experience. But the reality is most of the time our experiences lead our theology. And we try to make sense of the experiences of our life, both good, bad, and ugly, by coming back to the scripture and saying to God, or saying to, you know, wherever we find our anchoring and truth, make sense of this. But our worship, how we worship, who we worship, what we worship, what words we will allow ourselves to utter in worship flow out of what we actually believe about God. For instance, many of us were taught that the good news of Jesus, the gospel, was as simple as confess your sins and you'll get forgiveness of those sins and when you die, you get to go to heaven. Now, before you freak out, all of that is true. Just just breathe, okay? But there's some pretty significant issues with those three premises being called the gospel of Jesus. Um, There's about seven or eight problems with that. I'm only going to touch on two for the sake of worship. The, The first problem with that as titled the gospel, forgiveness of sin, heaven when I die, is first off, Jesus never preached that as the gospel. And so if it's the gospel of Jesus, we would be wise to go to Jesus and look up every time he says gospel and then say, Jesus, what do you say the gospel is? Not some highfalutin theological interpretation. Well, actually what he meant. No, 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 no. I'm not doing any of that. I'm saying, let's go to the book in the gospels. We'll deal with Paul later. We'll get to Peter later. Let's let Jesus tell us what the gospel is. And so often some of our issues with Jesus is that we've let other people tell us what Jesus meant when Jesus said really clear things about who Jesus was. And we've said, well, surely Jesus couldn't have meant what he said. I kind of think he did. Okay. Now, we can, t- we can arrive then at what Jesus says about himself and say, I don't want you as my God. Absolutely. But we ought to be wise to let Jesus define. And so our first issue comes up is Jesus talks about the gospel of the kingdom. And he calls us to submit our whole selves to his beautiful way of life. This becomes the first problem or issue we run into with our beliefs about Jesus and how they intersect the way we worship. The second issue comes up, and this one's really critical to work through. That if the gospel is simply forgiveness of sin in heaven when we die, and again, full stop, we do get forgiveness of sin in Christ, and it is only in Christ that our sin is forgiven, and we are assured heaven when we die. I don't think it's going to look like we think it will. I mean, it's not going to be drinking fountains with Mountain Dew and unicycles for whatever. That's what I thought it was going to be. We are promised those things. But if that's all the gospel is, then Jesus doesn't actually have to be our Lord. He doesn't need to be our leader. He certainly doesn't need to be our comforter. And he would never be our king. And and akin to that issue, the other issue we have, if that's all the gospel is, 
is we really have no need for Jesus after we've been forgiven. Jesus becomes a means to the end of redemption. And I don't think Jesus ever talked in his Gospels about simply being a means to an end. In fact, even when he was healing like crazy and multiplying fish, he got a little frustrated at times and said, listen, this is not what I've come for. And I'm convinced part of what he's saying in those moments, he says, I've come to preach the gospel of repentance and the gospel of the kingdom is I didn't come to be a means to your next meal. I came to be the meal. So let's recalibrate in these opening moments to remind ourselves the truth that the gospel is a far bigger and far more complicated story. And it is about God. And God's redeeming work. See, the problem, one of the issues with the gospel of Jesus loves me and forgives my sins and has heaven when I die is the main character in that gospel is me. We're the, we're the subject of the story. Now, for some of us, that's why we came to Jesus. Finally, somebody pays attention to me. And I want to tread on that carefully because I, I recognize that can bring up pain. But the good news is God is redeeming, but the story is about God. Jesus is the subject of our life, not the means by which we get a life. He is the subject of our life. And this is where really worship comes in. If Jesus is merely our means of healing or our means to get forgiveness or to get comfort, well then worship, like that gospel of forgiveness in heaven, can pretty easily just be a declaration about how we got forgiven, which is about us. Worship can just become about us. Or if worship is merely an emotive experience that makes me feel better about my loneliness or lifts my sadness or removes the guilt of my sin, which it can be all of those, but it ought be more because if it's just that, again, it's still just a story about me. About how bad Jesus wants me. Moses goes up the mountain quite a bit, but in Exodus 18 and Exodus 31 and many other times, because Moses cannot move forward in life if God doesn't speak. He can't do it. Remember there was this cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He can't move if the Lord doesn't lead him. Meanwhile, down the mountain, God's people, Israel, are scurrying around not hearing God's voice and they build a golden calf because they too have to feel the presence of something real and tangible. So to my atheist and agnostic friends who tell me, I've become an atheist because I can't possibly believe in a God who doesn't speak to me I usually surprise them when I say, I wouldn't either. I don't suggest you believe in a God who doesn't speak to you. That would be insanity. Um, and then I ask my atheist agnostic friends, what if I could help you hear his voice? And not like I, like Stu's got some magic button. I mean, any of us. But you get the point. Like, what, what if there was a means by which you've never been introduced to? Not by your own fault, but you've just never been introduced. And you would hear God speak all the time. Would that change things? Oh, my goodness, that would change everything. Okay, well, let's go away for a weekend to the lake, and um, I have a feeling you'll hear God. So Moses is up the mountain. He's hearing God speak. His people are down the mountain. They're not hearing God speak, and so they build a golden calf. 
Isaiah encounters God in worship in Isaiah 6, right? Encounters God, and he's cleansed from his guilt. So this forgiveness and the presence of God certainly goes hand in hand, but it's about his presence. It's about being with him. And then Jesus meets the woman at the well in John 4, and they have a, a quick interaction, which was really layered uh, culturally. I won't take the time to go into that now. But they talk a little bit about her messed up life and the choices she has made and trying to find fulfillment and trying to stave off her own loneliness and trying to find some reason to live and to feel love. And Jesus essentially tells her, all these ways you're trying to get love have failed you over and over and over again. But those who worship in spirit and truth, he says. When he turns the discussion to worship, she runs off a changed person because she has been with Jesus. And the story tells us she turns the entire village upside down, even though he told her not to say anything, which is fascinating dynamic. You see, in worship, we, we should absolutely sing of our forgiveness and declare and celebrate our forgiveness, certainly. And, and we should feel no qualms about that serotonin release that happens when an, an emotional minor chord hits and we hear our friends singing and we feel that emotional lift. God has made us emotional beings and anybody who's not moved by a major to a minor chord is tone deaf. I mean, there's something happens and it's like, all right, I don't know if that was God or just a minor chord, but that was cool. It's okay for it to just be cool. But those movements happen too in a silent prayer, in a moment of total silence, where we just breathe. Yes, it can happen in a loud crescendo, but we do more than declare that Jesus is our means to redemption. In worship, we recenter ourselves around the reality that Jesus is the subject of the story of our lives. Let me pray, and then I'll hand this off to Calvin. Jesus, you are the subject of the story of our lives. You are not an add-on. You, you are not merely a means to an end of a better life. You are not our ticket out of or our fire insurance. You are the central thing by which we move and breathe and have our being. Move in us as a people in these moments and teach us what it is to worship you and what happens in us when we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, my friends, I'm excited to be here with you all and sharing today. And really, um, I'm hoping that this conversation and, and what Stu and I both share is just really the mouthpiece, that we're the mouthpieces of God's, God's spirit, uh, what he wants to teach each of us. So, Lord, whatever is not from you, let it fall away. Um, I'm hoping we leave here today with a vision of what worship is and how it shapes us and also how that impacts the world around us because it's not just for us. So we're going to dive into some scripture here. Uh, Mark four, chapter 14, verse 35 and 36. But to kind of set the stage, this is after the, 
after the Last Supper, uh, Judas has left to betray the Savior, and Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he asks them, pray, stay here, watch, and, and pray. And then it says in verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So in the garden, we see this, this picture of Jesus being faced with a decision, right? And being fully man, he had a free will. So he, he could have clung to that will. In fact, that would have been probably the fleshly tendency uh, to insist that the cup would pass. And any of us who have kids probably know what it's like for your son or daughter to insist on something from you. Um, and, you know, everything was possible for the father. Jesus says to his dad, isn't there another way to make this happen? Everything's possible for you. But not what I want, what you want. Jesus's life uh, his ministry began at age 30, so he had actually 30 years of life experience before his ministry began. And um, I, I imagine there's not a lot written about Jesus' life up to the age of 30, there's some, but I imagine in those 30 years that he must have become accustomed to, to following, to living in the Father's will. Um, there were... I'm sure multiple times and decision points where he had been formed and prepared to fulfill his assignment on the cross. Uh, for example, Jesus' parents were not perfect, so he had a decision to obey those imperfect parents. I'm sure Jesus' siblings and, or schoolmates mistreated him at some point in 30 years. He had a decision to repay evil with evil or to repay evil with good and with kindness. Or as a carpenter, to pay taxes to a government that was oppressing his people in horrible and very real and tangible ways for him in that culture. But Jesus, both fully God and fully man, in every instance was living a life of surrendering his will to the fathers. And Dan, it was so powerful what you shared because it, it ties right in with, with the point that I had here, which is that Jesus took himself off his own throne and he his father's will became paramount. I want to look a little bit at what that means and how that position of Jesus' heart is our example in worship. And so if you turn uh, Romans 12, 1, this is Paul writing, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So we can see Jesus Christ as our example, offering his body as a sacrifice. He offered himself in our place, and then Paul later urging us to follow that example and says this is what true and proper worship is. There's some translations that say this is your act of spiritual worship. So we see both in the life of Jesus and the teaching of Paul that 
Worship is this formative choice to really say, you are God, I am not. Not what I want, but what you want. So when we enter into true and proper worship, in spirit and truth, we're taking ourselves off the throne. And we're declaring that his will matters more than ours. We're offering our our bodies, our lives as a complete sacrifice. And we say, have your way. Have your way in us. We prayed it this morning, church. Have your way in us. So we, in those moments, we make a decision to surrender to the will and the way of God for our lives, for our families, our careers, our parenting, every, every waking moment. That is our true and proper worship. And this choice, the, the choice to worship must extend beyond an hour and a half that we spend here. You know, Jesus's life was never lived outside of that place of surrender. His life was never lived outside of sacrificing his will to the will of his father. In, in John 5, it tells us that Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. It's a callback to Moses. I can't, I can't go unless you go. I can't move unless you tell me to move. And he could not have done that without submitting his will to his father's. The, the acts that we do here, be they singing, giving, praying, studying the word, these things are totally empty outside of a heart that is surrendered to the will and the way of God. And it's not that it happens immediately as soon as you make that decision. It's a daily, sometimes a moment by moment by moment to say, Is, this is true and proper worship. So, great. For worshiping and surrender our <laughs> How does it change? This is going to change the world around us, friends. It, it's going to blow the doors off of everything. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts 16. Starting in. a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. That's true, by the way. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. 
verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Isn't that awesome? Guys, I love, I really love this story for a lot of reasons. But I think for today, there's a few things that God uh, wants us to unpack. And it, it really ties into what, what we've been talking about all morning. Because Paul and Silas were living a life of worship to God. They were sacrificing their lives, their careers. They were on mission. And they were paying a price for it. They were suffering. We read in this story, they were severely beaten and imprisoned for this act of casting a demon out of a, of a slave girl. And really, she, they brought the kingdom of God to her. She was freed from that, <clears throat> that oppression of the demon. So just imagine for a minute, you're on a mission trip, and you bring the kingdom of God and cast a demon out of a person, and all of a sudden, the entire city you're in gathers around and mobs you, beats you with rods, flogs you severely, and then you're thrown in the jail. And you're not just thrown in jail, you got your feet, like, in stocks. Okay. I imagine, because I'm a human being, that it would have been pretty easy for Paul and Silas to get to get angry and bitter in that moment. They're looking around, they're going, I'm I'm just doing what you told me. And this is falling apart, man. I'm I got beat up, I'm in stocks, and I don't there's no way out of this. I don't know what time they were thrown in prison so maybe they wrestled it out with God but at midnight we know what they were doing they had made a formative choice to worship God they offered their praise and worship to him not because things were going awesome but because of who God was and he was worthy of their lives for all they knew they were never getting out of that jail for all they knew they were going to die there that night and still, they made the choice. And as a result, man, the world around them radically changed, right? The jailer gave their life. So, worship just for all those reasons that Stu mentioned, the, the emotional feeling, rejoicing in what God's done for us, powerful but it's not just for us it, if with our father's will and ushering his kingdom 
everywhere we go, whether that's your home, your job, Starbucks, wherever we go. Paul and Silas's worship, their acts of worship, shook the prison to its very foundation. What is that telling us? Our acts of worship are powerful, and by partnering with God, what is what does He come to do? He's come to set the captives free. By partnering with God, we can shake not just the foundations of the prison that we're in. Everybody's doors popped open. Everybody in that prison's doors were blasted open. It was shaken to its foundation. The formative choice that we have to make in worship will align us with the Father's will. It will shift the atmosphere around us, and it will announce his kingdom in tangible and powerful ways. The jailer... The jailer's world was changed in a tangible and powerful way. And if you read the story again, he didn't really, he wasn't bothered by any of the other prisoners. I'm sure those guys all walked out of there. He went home, he tended to them, and his whole house was baptized immediately. And he rejoiced because of that. Yeah. I think the other thing I'd throw in that we didn't cover in great depth there in that 16 is uh, Calvin is saying it, but let me drive it home that this jailer is baptized into a new way of living because of an encounter with God. And so it's not just a, he felt better. Hey, thanks for the forgiveness. Sweet, got that covered. Now let's get you guys chained back up. And no, he's, he's baptized into, I mean, obviously he's baptized physically later, but in that moment, he's baptized into a new way of life. He's becoming a different person. And uh, there, there are so many times in our life where we know or have some sense of this Christian way we want to live. And it's a beautiful way. And, and so we just try really hard to do better. I'm going to try to not be so mad. I'm going to try to not be so bitter. I'm going to try to not be cynical. I'm going to try to not be whatever. And we know full well that when we try harder, the only thing that happens is we are reminded that we know perfectly well we're not the person we're trying to be. That's what trying reminds us. It's like the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law serves to remind us we can never do it. But in worship, we enter into a training process. And I'm not just splitting hairs with words here. But in worship and in other spiritual disciplines, we enter into a training process to say, Jesus, by the power of your spirit, shape me into a person who desires to not be on the throne of my life who desires to not be the subject of the story, who desires to not have everything go my way, but desires, Jesus, your will be done. A few questions um, bouncing around that <clears throat> Calvin and I would love to take hours on this, but we, we won't um, do that to you. Uh, but a couple of questions that we think are probably floating around the room. Um, Calvin, one, um, why is singing such a central part? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of scripture that commands us to sing to the Lord, but Really, I, from my perspective and what I believe in my core, um, singing is confessional, and the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So we have this picture of, in, in from both Proverbs and James, about how powerful our words are. Proverbs tells us life and death is in the power of the tongue. And James tells us that the tongue is like the rudder that steers the ship of our life. And so if we make a practice of 
singing, confessing, declaring that he is God and I am not, that's setting a course. That's the rudder of the ship, right? And that also, that's why it can't be just on Sunday morning because you might be good for Sunday if you set your course on Sunday morning. What's going to happen on Tuesday night when your kids are going crazy? Yeah, and, and part of that, that tongue confessing and the, the rudder of the ship are other elements of vocalized worship. Uh, what, what are some other ways we can worship in addition to singing? Um, with full confession being, we as a church are just learning about some of this. And so we, we may be a little behind our Anglican sisters and brothers. We're probably a little behind in some areas of our Catholic brothers and sisters. Probably a little behind uh, in some ways of our Episcopalian brothers and sisters who, who have gotten us. But yeah, uh, beginning to enter in a little bit. Talk, talk a little bit about those. Yeah, so, so some of them we do, which is like, like a liturgy. So for instance, the prayer that, that I led earlier. Um, that would be considered a liturgy, and it's a very similar, con- you know, concept of our tongues are confessing. We're we're together communally, humbling ourselves, and it's actually in the prayer, "Have your way in us," you know. So that's surrender. Um, r- scriptural readings, which we do here periodically, and are looking to do more of, um, written writing out prayers that that are recited together. Um, all of these are acts of worship that align ourselves with the Father by by really exalting him to the place that we seem to want to sit in on our own thrones more often than not. Yeah. Uh, what about when I'm just not feeling it? So there's, you know, this sense of, yeah, I just, I, I don't, I don't want to go to church today, whatever that is, because I'm just not, I'm not feeling it. And um, and, and first off, there should be no guilt or shame motivation here. So it's not a, you know, you should be here every week if you really want Jesus. <laughs> it's not that, but it's how do I, when I am here and I'm feeling like, man, I just, I am not feeling it today. Whatever feeling it looks like for you, what do we do? How yeah. do we enter in? What, what's what's the benefit? Yeah, it's, it's great. And there's really, there's a communal aspect to worship that we get here with each other. Um, there, we know each other's stories, many of us, and most of us could probably look around the room and find at least one person here that we know had something rough go on in their life. So maybe you had some trauma or, you know, when we can see together that we've come to worship, um, now we're, we're engaging in the communal offering to God where I can look and say, I know that so-and-so had a rough week or I know that so-and-so just got laid off from their job or I know whatever the, whatever the case may be. We're going to worship together and that person has an opportunity and we I have an opportunity to come alongside my brother and my sister. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'm modeling and I'm saying, Lord, your goodness is a firm foundation regardless of what's going on in our lives. Paul and Silas worshiped God not because things were awesome. Probably when it's least awesome is when we have the most to gain by bringing ourselves to the Lord. I want to talk really, really briefly about this whole fake it till you make it kind of thing which people talk about or may not talk about, but 
I, I firmly believe that the reference to worshiping in spirit and in truth that Stu brought up earlier, that's not, worshiping in spirit and truth means being who you really are. So your spirit is going to lead and say, maybe you're going to say, Lord, this is, this is what I have today. I'm not, quote unquote, feeling it, but I'm here to worship you and offer you who and what I am because you're worthy. And, you know, we sing uh, one of the we sing a lyric. I won't be formed by feelings. I'll hold fast to what is true. So we're not going to let our feelings lead us. But there is an opportunity there uh, when when things are not awesome, when things don't feel great is you have the most to gain by leaning in. You have the most to gain by saying, you are God and I am not. And I worship you because of who you are, not because of what you've done for me. Yeah, so like, you know, in worship, worship is a revealing act. It's revelatory, right? So it's revealing when we worship who God is, right? We reveal, and sometimes God reveals to us things about who he is in worship, and that's amazing. But there's another part of that revelatory act that it's revealing who we are as well. And so when a lyric comes across or a prayer comes across or a moment of silence comes across and my mind is racing to all kinds of angry and lustful thoughts in that moment of silence, it's revealing who I actually am. The lyric I refuse to sing because I don't believe it is revealing something about my soul and we would give ourselves a good gift to attend to that revelation and to say, is that who I want to be? Do I, do I want to be bound up with that anxiety? Do I want to be bound up with that anger? Do I, is that who I want to be? And Jesus says, as he did to the woman at the well in that moment, would you like to worship in spirit and truth? And so that, there's a revelatory nature to worship that is happening in at least two dimensions that we ought to recognize. You know, uh, Philippians in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 5, it, it tells us that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and obeyed to the point of death on a cross. So as we get ready to close today, I, I, I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, um, Christ is our example. And he made the formational and costly choice of saying, not what I want, but what you want. And so I, I urge us, that's the standard through grace that we are aiming for. That heart and attitude position, uh, position of our heart and our attitude of surrender. Yeah. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and Ellie and the team's going to come lead us one more time. Pastor Dan and I are going to be uh, here. If you would like prayer for um, anything, uh, but really... Uh, for those who may struggle with worship or may want more or feel like there's more but not know how to get there, I would love to pray with you. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you so much for your presence here today. Thank you for your power that moves in our midst. And thank you for the opportunities we have to make a choice that forms us in your image, a choice to say, not my will, but yours. Lord, would you have your way with us today and as we go forth from this place? Have your way, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we sing one more song?